KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Flashpoint podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you rate and review this podcast? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Please give us feedback. I read every single one of them, and I really appreciate you. Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Flashpoint family. Now let's get to it. This week, we focus on legacy. Reporting on Kobe Bryant sparked backlash and outrage, but it raises questions. How do you tell the story when the subject's past is, well, complicated? People do good, people do bad. That doesn't necessarily make them a terrible person. Do you leave out bad facts if they redeem themselves? It becomes about who you like and who you feel relationship to. We dig in on the nuance of telling one's life story. Then she's helping to reframe how America views slavery. This is really our founding paradox and our founding hypocrisy. The creator of the New York Times 1619 Project will be celebrated in Philly this month. I'll tell you who's behind it coming up. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is legacy. How do you tell the story of one's life when it's complicated? We saw the issue play out in real time following the tragic, untimely death of basketball great Kobe Bryant. He will be laid to rest in coming days. And the backlash against journalists like Gail King and others who mentioned Bryant's 17-year-old rape allegations still flowing. But what is the right way to tell the story of one's life? Do you leave out the bad parts? If not... How do you put them in context? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Temple University professor Greg Feisman. He is also an expert in reputation management and crisis communication. We also have Feminista Jones, a Philly-based social worker who is also a nationally known author, speaker, and blogger. And finally, we have longtime journalist Lynn Washington, who's a professor who teaches courses in investigative reporting, journalism, law, and more. Everybody, Welcome to Flashpoint. I want to jump right into this because people have repeatedly called Kobe Bryant's legacy complicated. Lynn, I want to start with you. Is it complicated? Yes and no. There was that one incident, and its reportage now is lacking, I think, some important context. But the fact is, reporters have to report on that, uh, both ethically and and, in real time. You say it is, but it isn't. And why is that? You can't ignore something that happened, but... In talking about this particular incident happening with with Kobe, it was one incident and it wasn't like serial. So to bring that out now is, I think, to magnify it disproportionately. But then do you just ignore it? And I would say no. Feminista, you wrote a blog post titled Redemption in a World That Never Forgets. You both applauded Bryant for all his work and legacy, but you also noted his humanity. What's your take on this? Yeah, I, I, this idea of complicated, for me, a black man who cheats on his wife many times to the point where she wants to leave him and stresses her out, that she has a, you know, a miscarriage, she sexually assaults somebody, it's not really complicated for me. It's actually quite common. You look at someone like Beyonce talking about Jay-Z's affairs, stressing her out to the point of miscarriages. I mean, this is something I've experienced that myself personally, so I don't see that as necessarily complicated. I see it as something that happens, but I think it's also part of his story. Right. So it's not just about this one particular incident that happened at a hotel room. We're talking about a young man who did a lot of messed up things. And a lot of people have glossed over the fact that Vanessa, his wife, left him, filed for divorce because of all the wrong that he was doing to her. So, you know, they got back together and reconciled, but it wasn't just about this one thing. So we do have to look at him as a whole person. As far as complicated I can't call it complicated because we see it happen so often. And I want to bring you in here, Greg, because, Greg, you help people repair their reputation when they're alive. How do you deal with it once they're gone? Well, I think Feminista and Lynn are are correct. Uh, It's you have to tell the whole story. You have to give the balanced story. And while I agree with Feminista that it's not complicated, in another sense, it is complicated. And the reason for that is because people are complicated. People are not black and white. We all have things in our past that we might think now we might do better and we all have things that we're proud of but to give you have to give the balance if you're discussing anybody's legacy people do good people do bad that doesn't necessarily make them a terrible person per se 
But you have to give the balanced story or you're not being truthful and you're not being honest. Yeah, and, and, and Len, I want to go back to you because a lot of folks have complicated legacies, but a lot of people here, Len, a lot of people said, you know what? Kobe Bryant redeemed himself, and he has been consistent for some time. He retired. He deserved. His wife forgave him. He deserved to be forgiven. Why Why even bring it up? And there are journalists in this city that left out those allegations uh, from more than 17 years ago. I err on the side of reporters having to report. I mean, that's our job is to report what's going on. What I find problematic with the Kobe case is that a lot of context has been left out uh, about this. Um, yes, he did cheat on his wife. He apologized very publicly. He gave her a big diamond ring as a result of that. But that allegation itself, there were some issues around that, and this has been lost with it. I mean, that particular person he had this incident with made false statements to police and actually wrote a letter um, apologizing for it. There were some issues in that particular county. A few years before this incident happened, that county had been successfully sued for racially profiling uh, persons of color, and it ended up paying uh, nearly a million dollars to this. That is not even a part of this coverage about it and that's what you know I find problematic as well as how very problematic issues are not reported when other people of prominence pass. Yeah and give an example then. One example would be uh, George H.W. Bush uh, the former president who died in what is it November 2018. A lot was said about him uh, all of the accomplishments that he's made but one of the problems that we had during the 1980s was a a, a, just a ton of cocaine fl flowing into this country that triggered the crack cocaine epidemic. And that person, George H.W. Bush, in his role as the CIA director, but more specifically during his time as the vice president for then-president Ronald Reagan, helped facilitate what was later become known as the Iran-Contra scandal. And that was facilitated a lot of cocaine coming into the country as a way to illegally fund the Contra war in, in Nicaragua. And we also have to remember that George H. W. Bush, when he announced his his war on drugs in September of 89, they lured a kid from southeast Washington, D.C. to Lafayette Park right across the street from the White House to make a purchase of a cocaine so he could show cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, saying, that, yeah, and it's being used and sold in the park right across the street from the White House. No, it wasn't. No so drug dealer in their right mind would do this. So you felt like that 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 his legacy was whitewashed in some respects. Because because yeah, of well, who he was, his prominence and things like that. And maybe this should have happened with, with Kobe Bryant. And I want to go back to you, Feminista. I mean, there yeah, his I wife agree. his <laughs> his wife I don't agree. I, we've talked about Bush a lot. We've talked about all the stuff that he's done. He's one of the you know, the the presidents responsible for the where where the country is right now. But again, I don't know if we can compare uh, a presidential war criminal to a basketball player who did whatever. And, and I just wanted to go back to when um, you said that he gave his wife a ring and apologized. That was for the sexual assault situation. Kobe continued over several years to, to cheat on his wife and run around. And Vanessa didn't file for divorce until several years later. So I don't want us to make this scene. I'm not coming on Kobe Bryant or whatever, because as I wrote in my article, people forgive. They, she forgave him. She went back. Fine. We can do that. And I think that he did, you know, redeem himself. I look at someone like a Mike Tyson. You can't mention Mike Tyson's name without the rape case, but you know the difference between Mike and Kobe? Kobe admitted and apologized and said that he now understands that he did something wrong. To this day, Mike Tyson maintains his innocence, even when he talked about being an abuser of other women, right? So Kobe, at some point, was willing, whether it was under, you know, the, the, the civil case pressure or whatever, he was willing to go on record to acknowledge that he did something wrong and that he violated this person. Mike Tyson went to jail, did time, and still to this day yeah, yeah. says, I didn't do it. You know what I mean? So and he did time. He actually did jail there. time, and he was and he convicted. he did the time. And when people, and people are talking about complicated, but I don't think it's complicated. We could say complex, that all humans are complex. I think that's a little bit different than complicated. Yeah. I don't see anything complicated about, about you know, Kobe's legacy. And, Greg, I mean, everybody says, you know, uh, we should include everything. But, I mean, do we really include everything for everybody? I mean, we're in a space right now in our country where we're looking at figures that we have, statues, and, and their legacies were not told in the right way. A lot of stuff was left out. Why is Kobe so different, and, and why should everything be brought up 
now that he's he shifted his life towards the end of his his life that was cut short well there's a couple of things remember that history is written by the winners so things do tend to get whitewashed if it supports your cause or supports the winning side but number two again i come back to you know we also live in an age of social media there is no privacy anymore we just have to understand that so that if the media don't report it or other legitimate sources don't report it, it's going to come out anyway. So it's a question of who's controlling the narrative. And if you're going to tell somebody's story, then you should tell all the story and let people make their own decision. It, it seems like the, the Bryant family wasn't able to carry this narrative. And does timing matter? And i got to mm-hmm. ask you that, Greg, too, mm-hmm. because the backlash was because it was so soon. He hasn't even been buried yet. Look at the recent incident with Gail King and Snoop Dogg. Yeah. Okay, it's another example where where Snoop Dogg got defensive when Gail King talked about this and then today apologized. Yeah. Saying, you know, I was raised better than this way, you know, and so it's okay to be on somebody's side, but to deny the facts, you know, we live in we live in an age of alternative facts, but facts are facts. To deny that they exist or that something happened is just being dishonest. Yeah. And so, Lynn, I got to get you back in here because should people consider this this backlash, this should you be more sensitive and think about timing when you tell these kinds of stories? I mean, does it have to be told the day or the day after he passes? In the Society of Professional Journalists Ethics Code in, this, in the section called Minimize Harm, it says balance the public's need for information against the potential harm or discovered. And there's a reminder in there that pursuit of news is not a license for arrogance or undue intrusiveness. Within the radio, TV, digital news uh, associations, ethics code. It says facts change over time and you need to update the stories as well as the um, archival versions of it. So again, should this incident and what Feminista is talking about in terms of a, a whole pattern, that's not what being in the reportage now. It's just this one incident. Her having contextualized it in a larger instance, that would have provided more context for what people were understanding. So a lot of this backlash is that here's this one incident that the guy apologized for, and now it's just being magnified to, you know, on equal par with all the other good that he did. Uh, so that's what I think is causing the um, public ruckus. Fabrice, you can jump back in here because isn't it different, though, when we talk about one's personal life? versus the public life because in a way this incident that we're talking about the rape allegations that were ultimately dismissed because the woman declined to testify that situation was public because it was made public the issues between him and his wife that's a more personal matter isn't that a decision that's made by the family whether or not to include that versus something that is more public where that is that is up for possibly up for debate when everybody talks about oh he had a family it's too soon you know the person died if something were to happen to donald trump everybody that hates that man and has been affected by him will take the social media celebrating his death or talking about all the bad that he's done and they'll do it within the first 45 minutes of getting that information people are not going to be saying what about don jr and and ivanka you know all they're not going to be saying all of that they're going to be trash talking him why because they don't like him And so it becomes, and I wrote this piece a long time ago, it becomes about who you like and who you feel relationship to and kin to. And right now what we see is there was a a black man who was very successful. He inspired a lot of young people. He made a lot of money, did a lot of good, and he passed away way too young. And there's a lot of people that relate to that, but also find that it's so rare for them to see, right? Like black millionaires are not plentiful like that regardless. So they don't want to see this one man that seemed to have gotten it right to be tarnished, and I get that. At the same time, for people to act like they're gonna show the same care and concern to the Bin Laden family or the Hussein family or the Trump family is nonsense. But is that fair? Is that fair to compare Kobe Bryant to them? I, 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 no, I'm talking about, I, I put it in the context of if people are gonna make general statements about it's too soon to talk about a person's bad things after they die, if that's the blanket statement and I have seen that, I'm like, this doesn't apply to people you don't like. It only applies to people that you have you hold in high regard. And there's other, going to be people who don't hold your same person in high regard, people who hate that same person. So why do you get to call for, you know, that, that, that silent time and that timing thing? I think people can say whatever they want whenever they want. That's the nature of human society. Yeah. You don't want to see it log off. 
kind of where we've evolved to, you know, where, Greg, where you, where you do hear people say that if you don't like it, tune it out. But I have to say, we and, let's, and I want to broaden the, the discussion a little bit mm-hmm. because we've seen a number of very prominent, well-liked people who were not perfect pass away. And you read the story of their life, a lot of the things like we're talking about here are left out of it. You know, everybody knows Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was an imperfect man. But when you read the New York Times obituary, they're, talk, they're focused on his civil rights. They don't talk about his personal life. Have we shifted as a society where now... Everything's up for grabs? I think we have. And, you know, I do want to draw attention to your point about public persona versus private persona. Nobody necessarily, nobody forced Kobe Bryant to be a professional basketball player. He had God-given talent, and he worked very hard to perfect his game. But nobody forced him to be a professional basketball player. That was a choice he made. Therefore, when you are a public figure in the public sphere, you give up a certain degree of privacy. Now, what happens behind closed doors in his house, that's different. Okay, unless it comes out in another way. Again, I come back to, you know, there's cameras on the streets. There's, you know, Alexa's listening to you in the house. We don't live in an age where privacy exists anymore. And to hold on to those old notions, it may be noble, but it's not reality. It's not the world in 2020. I think people have to understand that with social media, with Twitter, with all these things, the idea of privacy just yeah. is gone. That concept just doesn't exist anymore. And I don't see it coming back. Yeah. And and so as we broaden this discussion past Kobe Bryant, I mean, there's a lot of folks out here. I mean, you see, I mean, if you go even back, I mean, there's we've had KKK members serve in Congress. Mm -hmm. okay, And, and and you wonder, are those will that information be in the ultimate transcript of their final, you know, legacy? that is written and shared with everybody. And that's the question, like how much of the things, especially if you redeemed yourself or people think you've redeemed yourself, do we go back and pull that stuff and put it in? And if so, where should it be? And how do you put it in context, Lynn? Greg said two things that are so important. One is the impact and the pervasiveness of social media. And the other is this notion of privacy. The privacy that we knew 10 years ago and definitely 20 years ago is not the privacy that we know and understand today. And I don't think that our society in the United States or societies around the world have really caught up with how pervasive and how much influence social media has. So, you know, we can talk about these, um, you know, principles and what should and shouldn't be, but the realities of social media are are just incredible. And and part of what we're talking about now, either in the micro sense in terms of Kobe Bryant or the larger sense, we really haven't adjusted enough for the impact of social media because we really don't understand it. It's just so new and it's so overwhelming and so large. It's like, wow, but it's there. And there are so many people around the world trying to understand it in a scholarly way, as well as living it out every day. Billions of people on social media saying stuff that's true, saying stuff that's not true, and saying stuff that's like just flat crazy. And then other people pass it on. I like that. And I thought it was interesting. Feminista's article says redemption in a world that never forgets. And and we are, have become a place where, you know, you do one thing. I mean, Kevin Hart had that very same issue. He had a tweet that was... A homophobic, a homophobic joke. It was tweeted out. He apologized years ago for that, and he had. Then he was told, "You're going to lose opportunities now, even though you did apologize. If you don't apologize again, how you know? How do you wait? Wait, this? but he never apologized, though, Terry. That was the issue from the queer community. It wasn't just one tweet. He had several tweets, not only attacking the queer community, but talking about black women and comparing us to animals and all these things. And he never was pushed to apologize for that. And he'd never apologized for the queer thing. And people were like, all you have to do is apologize. And he went on this whole tour saying, I don't have to apologize again, when he never really did. And I want to just go back really quickly to what was said about, you know, who writes the story. It, yes, social media. I wrote the scholarly book on it, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I have expertise in this. People have been studying this and for many years now. But this idea that now more women are writing stories, more people of color are writing stories. So you're going to get different stories now, and you're going to get different recountings of people's lives than you would have 20, 30, 50 years ago. Because it's not white men writing about white men. It's not men just writing about men. It's women also 
Like I'm having this conversation and I'm like listening to these two men and I'm just like, I expect there to be a certain level of bro code, right? I'm not going to talk too bad about Kobe because that's kind of how it is. I'm not saying that that's exactly who y'all are, but that's what I expect. But when a woman who is a sexual assault survivor writes a story about Kobe Bryant, it's going to look very different than the black man that looked up to him or was proud of him. It's going to be different. And And we have to accept that that's where a lot of the change is. And social media just amplifies those voices because when we were kept out of journalism, now we can go to social media and create our own platforms to tell our story. And Greg, you had a comment. Yeah, Yeah, Phoenix, I agree with you. I think underrepresented voices have been silenced for way too long. And it's time to give a much more holistic narrative of any story. But I also want to go beyond the issue of social media because what we're, we're really talking about connection with privacy is technology. And the pace of technology yeah. is advancing so fast. The laws, the morale, the morales haven't caught up to this. Mm-hmm. Again, you know, you look at things like artificial intelligence, which we're all used to because we use Siri. What are these companies doing with Every time we use it, well, I know what they're doing. They're building profiles of us, and we're all in databases somewhere, and that's fine. We voluntarily use it. Nobody forces anybody to go onto Facebook. But when you do, you click the box because nobody reads the disclaimer. Well, that gives them the license to do whatever they want with your information, and most of what they do is sell it to marketers. It's not illegal. Ethically, morally, we can debate that, and there is a debate going on. But you have to – we're in 2020. This stuff isn't going away. And, and I have- and jump in here because the other thing that comes to mind to me is the fact that people will now be judged because it's a world that never forgets people will now be judged forever by sometimes possibly their worst moment even though they've lived a long life before you know unless you were there or unless it was reported on you could possibly get away with it but now it's like because of the technology it's going to be very difficult to redefine your legacy, especially if you have a really, really bad moment, because folks will never let you forget. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, you know, people I still agree. deny the Holocaust. I agree. And I think that for someone like me, I, I deal with that all the time. I'm like, when I die, somebody's going to pull up a tweet from 2011 that has an old screenshot, <laughs> and they're going to show it. They're not yeah. going to care. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, and I accept that. Being a public figure or what have you, like you said, when he became a basketball player, that's the choice he made. So, yeah, people are never going to forget. All you have to do is just surround yourself with people that will extend you grace and try to extend grace to other people, the same that you would want extended to you. Yeah. And Len, I got to ask you, I mean, like, I was thinking about how do you write this? If you're writing this obituary, is something like this, something like this shouldn't be in the first paragraph, but you to leave it out would be wrong. How do you put it in context as a writer? The short answer is no, I wouldn't put it in the lead or the second paragraph, uh, but it would be down in the story. You have to deal with this. I mean, it's there. If you don't deal with it, uh, people who are sitting out reading this are going to say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to su- suppress the information? So it's, it's a very difficult piece for journalists in terms of what they should do and how they should do it. And and quick follow up. Doesn't it actually make him better, the fact that he was able to recover from this? I mean, it's an example because you don't have to show that that if you do make a big mistake in life, that you could still recover and be a great person. It portrays him as a human being, not a god. Yeah. And that's the difference. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's what I wrote in my piece. That's Ultimately, that was the last thing that I said, was that he redeemed himself and he created this legacy he learned from his mistakes he moved on and went on to be an amazing person who did great things in the world and that's who we should remember and i believe that for anyone who has gone through that and done those kinds of things and things like that but the full picture really shows young people looking up to him that you know what if i mess up it doesn't have to define me for the rest of my life i can take responsibility i can do the right thing and i can move forward yeah, that's why I think it's important to talk about that part of his legacy, as well as others who are able to do the same thing. Should the vicious knee jerk reaction to journalists in this case, like Gail King and others, because she won the only one, the people who brought up Kobe's Bryant's past accusations, should this color the way one writes about a legacy that does have complexities? Should this should you should you be thinking about how people are going to react when you write this? And I'll throw that to everybody. Well, yes. I hear I sound like a politician. Yes and no. Um, (laughs) The reality for journalists is this. You're going to write something. Somebody will embrace it. Other people will reject it and reject it with venom. Feminista said something, you know, a while back. It kind of gets down to do you like this person if you don't? 
people who don't like Trump, he could walk on water and he would still be fill in the blank. Um, so you just try to do what you can do. And, and again, I just try to come back to these ethical codes uh, in the in the radio TV uh, code. It says uh, journalism's obligation is to protrude truth and report it, not to withhold it. So at some point in your reportage in your career, you're going to write something that's truthful, that's going to upset people, sometimes to the point of having death threats. And uh, you be in the business long enough, you're going to have death threats. You might even have some contracts taken out on you, like I have. Um, fortunately, um, either the people couldn't shoot straight or the money wasn't enough, so I'm still here to, to talk to you. Hill, I'm glad you're still here, Linda, tell no. the tale. Oh, <laughs> I've, been like, I've, been getting death threats. I've been getting death threats for years. I honestly don't care. Like, I, what I think about is trying to write cohesively. Like when I wrote a piece for the Washington Post about why Harriet Tubman shouldn't be on the $20 bill, there were so many people that were bothered by that. But then there were so many people who were just like, you know what? I hadn't even thought about these things. And that's what I try to do when I write is to give people something to think about. And I'm not writing it to craft a, a positive re or a negative reaction. It's like, I just want to know that this is my personal best that I put my name on. And however it goes, it goes. And you know she knows I mean? how to push the button. Right. She knows how is. to push the button. Right. I really do. <laughs> I, I will push it because I believe that it sparks conversation. Like everybody was, that was reading my Kobe piece, they're like, this is the best thing I've read about Kobe. Thank you. You know, and they wanted to hear it from a black feminist woman, right? They were tired of hearing the sports people and the men. They wanted to hear a woman, a black woman, a black feminist woman, write about this man in a way that addressed all the nuances and the complexity. And that's what I tried to do. I, yeah. And I don't, I don't care, honestly. I didn't really care much about Kobe one way or the other. I'm not a fan. I'm not a hater. So yeah. I just wrote what I, what I realized was, you know, was Yeah, there. and I think he struck people who weren't even fans because he was so young and because he had such a bright light uh, and life ahead of him. Yeah. And, Greg, you wanted to comment. Yeah, I, I'm not to oversimplify things, but this is why you have Fox News and MSNBC. You have different perspectives. And what I always encourage my students and, and people in general for good citizenship is to get your news from different sources. You know, get it from the politically left and the politically right and then listen to their arguments and then decide. Don't get out of the bubble, you know, whether... Yeah, echo chamber. The yeah. echo chamber. I mean, that's what social media has become. It's an echo chamber. So, do you, you know, you really are going to let a thousand strangers who've never met you and never will influence what your opinion is? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. You know, yeah. get yeah. get be well read. Get perspectives on the same story from different sources. Then you make the decision. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. What is the bigger lesson of the debate and emotional turmoil surrounding the legacy of Kobe Bryant? And how will it inform how we tell the life stories of others? Shying away from difficult cases is not necessarily more ethical than taking on the challenge of reporting them. So... Will this have some long-term impact in terms of changing either the way reporters report or public perceives that? I don't think so. I think whenever you're covering a legacy, whether it's a public person or somebody not as public, tell the truth and let people decide for themselves. Tell the whole story and, and be true to yourself as you're writing. Thank you very much to Lynn Washington, to Greg Feistman, and to Feminista Jones for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, they're celebrating 100 years of fighting for civil liberties. We're really trying to have a party. The ACLU of Pennsylvania prepped for its centennial, plus hear from its main honoree who is reshaping how America views slavery. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint fam. If you like what you hear, please stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes. Some of our most popular episodes include the exclusive Featuring David L. Cohen from Comcast. He's talking about the $20 billion lawsuit against the company brought by entertainment mogul Byron Allen. In addition, we got a lot of downloads on our hair and identity show. It was inspired by the one and only Ayanna Presley, who came out as bald. And if you're wondering what is human trafficking, take a listen to this Flashpoint Extra exclusive where Philadelphia mom tells the story of her daughter getting trafficked at 15 years old. She's sharing it, hoping to save others. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review. Tell us what you think. Thanks all. 
This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. Our newsmaker of the week has made headlines for years for being on the front lines and the protection of civil liberties. The ACLU of Pennsylvania will celebrate 100 years this month, and they're doing it big as they honor New York Times Magazine reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project. It works to reframe how we view the impact of slavery on America. And she's here with Reggie Shuford, executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Both of you, welcome to Flashpoint. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for having us. So first of all, 100 years. Congratulations. Thank you. I've been there almost 25 of those 100 years. A quarter of a century. I feel it. (laughs) So for for folks who've never, I mean, we know about the ACLU, but tell us a quick history of why it was founded in the first place. Well, it was founded in response to anti-immigrant sentiment, people protesting uh, World War I. So when I think about that, it's like, what's old is new? It's like 100 years later, we really are battling some of the same fights that we were encountering 100 years ago. Yeah. And I know this year is a, is a big deal. And I've actually met you years ago. You yes. were a KYW game changer Thank a few years ago. Yep. And uh, the ACLU here in Pennsylvania has done voting rights, immigrant rights. You guys have been really, really busy. They keep us really busy. And I don't think uh, that 100 years from now, we won't be as busy as we are. But this moment is to celebrate yes. like, 100 years of accomplishments and fighting for civil liberties and to have a party. It's like, I feel like, we need some things to celebrate. Yeah, right? people who are in the fight don't always take a break. We don't, but we need one. And one of your honorees, tell first of all, tell us about the We the People Award. We're so excited about it. It's actually um, an inaugural award, and I think we ah. made it just for somebody of Nicole's prominence, right? And um, I think she is um, the appropriate person to receive this first-time award precisely because of her current contributions to conversations about racial justice um, and some of the things that we share in common is, you know, a racially just and socially just America. And I think she's the most important and prominent journalist on the national stage that is that, are, that is forcing these conversations to happen. Definitely. And so, Nicole, uh, Hannah-Jones, uh, first of all, I'm a huge fan of your work. I've taken workshops by the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Journalism, which you co-founded. First, your reaction to this inaugural award created just for you. Uh, well, I didn't realize it was uh, the inaugural inaugural rewards or excuse me awards. So I'm even more honored um, than I was uh, when I first found out. Um, you know, the ACLU is a tremendously important organization uh, that certainly fights for many issues and the issues that are at the heart of my reporting, um, which is equality in, in education and housing. So. Um, I'm really um, excited to help commemorate this 100th anniversary and to receive this honor. Yeah. And one of the most important works, I think, of last year, 2019, and it continues to uh, resonate. um, And I think it will for many, many years is the 1619 Project. Uh, Could you explain what it is, Nicole, and why you decided to do it? Sure. The 1619 Project um, sought to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the first Africans being sold into the colony of Virginia. And what it really is arguing is that um, that day can mark uh, our true founding because nothing about modern American life would be left untouched by that uh, decision to purchase that first group of human beings. And the project, through um, a series of essays, takes some aspect of uh, life in America right now and traces it back to slavery in ways that are often very surprising. Yeah. And you look at the issue of health care, you look at the issue of productivity in American business, just even the way way business is run, uh, got its early founding and plantations in the South. Absolutely. So what I really wanted to show was we often think that, you know, slavery was a long time ago. Uh, slavery was marginal to the development of American institutions, and that's simply false. Uh, slavery was central in how our political system developed, our uh, system of capitalism developed, um, certainly our democracy itself, but also in the American diet, why we consume so much sugar, uh, why there's so much traffic in Atlanta and other cities, why we're the only Western industrialized nation without universal health care. We can trace uh, all of these things back to either the institution of slavery or the anti-black racism that developed to justify slavery. Um, 
but that's not how we are taught about this uh, institution in our schools, and that's not the way that we think about slavery in kind of our national memory. It's, um, you know, Philadelphia is such an appropriate place for um, this honor because, as we know, while Thomas Jefferson was in Philadelphia writing those words of the Declaration mm. that made the global case for liberty, he owned 130 human beings, and he actually brought um, his brother-in-law, who he held in slavery, with him uh, as he was writing the words of the Declaration. This is really our founding paradox and our founding hypocrisy, and we're still grappling with that. Now, I will say that there is now uh, a, a shift in how curriculum, because there's now a 1619 curriculum that's being implemented in schools across the country. Um, just your thought, because you cover education, uh, you you talked about this issue repeatedly, just your, re- your reaction to being able to impact the way in which children learn about the history of this country. Uh, that has got to be some of the most uh, fulfilling uh, work of my life. When I pitched the 1619 Project last year, I didn't even consider that this could one day be used as curriculum. And the fact that the project only came out a few months ago and it's already being taught in all 50 states and in uh, several large school districts like Chicago, Washington, D.C., Newark, um, every high school in those districts is now teaching the curriculum. Buffalo Public Schools just announced that the 1619 Project is now a mandatory part of the curriculum. And why that is so important is, you know, the 1619 Project is always uh, going to be supplementary. It is not going to replace traditional history, but it is going to trouble the way that we are taught traditional history. And what I hope really help young people to question uh, the common story that we've been told and to question um, our kind of founding, where our founding ideals really true and our, where our founding myths really um worth deifying, and hopefully bring those of us whose communities have been placed at the margins of the American story to the center where we belong. And I got to say, and and this is for the podcast, Reggie, because um, there has been pushback uh, to your, to the work. Uh, And first of all, I listened to all the podcasts. I read the magazine as well. And um, because I'm in radio, and the podcasts were so well produced. Um, But, but there was critical pushback to the work um, by historians. um, And, and, but the New York times defended it. You've defended it. And I just want to get your reaction to that pushback and, and, and as well as the defense um, that was mounted uh, because change is not easy. Yeah. It it is the most predictable thing in the world that um, you would put out a project in the New York times arguing for a radical reframing of the way we see our country, um, that that would inspire people to push back and debate uh, those ideals. And um, to be sure, the pushback from historians has been from a very small Mm. number of historians, uh, fewer than 10. And we have gotten support from dozens and dozens of of historians. And of course, uh, historians consulted on the project, they wrote for the project, and they fact-checked the project. Um, So I think that what is good is that this has fostered a public conversation. It has fostered a public debate around our founding ideals and and how we see ourselves as a country and the role of slavery in our country. Um, And one would never expect that everyone would agree with uh, every interpretation and every argument that we made in the project. So to me, all of this is a benefit because it has us all thinking um, about who we are and our national identity. Yeah. Conversations that are long overdue, I think. And when you hear this is a radical and and this is something, Nicole, you know, the word she used, uh, Reggie, radical, you know, look or reinterpretation of of long held beliefs. But we know who was writing history, you know, back in the day. So we, we look at this. And so that ties to me like. Talk about when you hear Nicole talk about this, and it's, you had some shock looks about this. Yeah, this, this, I mean, and then when you hear that and you tie it to the We the People yeah. Award, I mean, who's going to get the next one? That's what I want to. I want to ask you that question. <laughs> we might retire it, but I was just thinking, when, when Nicole, <laughs> we might retire it. Uh, when Nicole used the word radical, I, mm. it made me think that even when we are, even when some an idea is not radical, but it's merely the truth about race, we get pushback and a reaction. Yeah. Right? Um, it doesn't have to be radical, but so long as it's about the truth of racism or slavery in America, people push back. I mean, people don't want to have those those conversations 
Um, and we are not practiced as a, as a society really to have those conversations. And so what I was surprised about, the look you saw on my face, mm. was the fact that it's now curriculum in all 50 states. Like, that is amazing to me because certainly when I was growing up in North Carolina, these conversations were not happening. And a current book um, was written by David Zucchino, also of the New York Times, about my hometown of Wilmington, North Carolina, about the 1898 racial coup that happened, a mm. massacre I didn't learn that when I was growing up in Wilmington. Yeah. And it took me to be living in New York City in my 30s before I first heard about that. So we're not learning these things, and the conversation Look, is long overdue. And, 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 and one of the things we learned, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm a huge Ida B. Wells fan is because she would uncover things that were buried. We heard about Tulsa, Oklahoma. Absolutely. People literally did not know about exactly. this massacre. Uh, we always say this is the most... You know, devastating, you know, mass shooting or mass killing. And then we say, what about Tulsa? Absolutely. What about this? What about that? A lot of this history has been buried. And I want to just make a point about the the, the radical. All movements start out as radical. Exactly. And then when they move into the mainstream, everybody forgets that it started out radical. Dr. King was considered radical. Exactly. So, you know, (laughs) just just to put that out there, Nicole, it starts one way and then it ends another way. Exactly. Uh, And so tell us about this big party. And I know... And then, Nicole, I'm, I'm going to ask you about what you're going to talk because, I mean, of course, you got to give a speech. So, first of all, tell us about this party. Already. Yeah, it is a party. It's really a celebration of the 100 years of the work defending civil liberties that um, the ACLU has been engaged in. We'll take a breath after we celebrate, and then we'll look toward the next 100 years. But um, So, tickets are available at aclupa.org forward slash centennial. We'll be having performances by singer-songwriter J.S. Andara, The Brotherly Love, portion of the Philadelphia Gay Men's Chorus, Martha Graham Cracker. So we're really trying to have a party. Right? Right. Well, you got Martha Graham Cracker <laughs> up in there. Martha's That's a party. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, and, and while we're celebrating, um, you know, 100 years, we're also celebrating Nicole's work here. And so what do you think you got? Do you have any idea what you're going to say yet? I know this is you got some time to figure it out, but any ideas? No. <laughs> She's like, I work on deadline, people. I exactly. work on deadline. <laughs> well, I no, d- I mean, what I hope really is to just highlight um, the ongoing struggle for racial justice and, and racial equality. We, uh, It's important to mark progress, but uh, I think always thinking that things will get better in the future sometimes uh, makes us feel we are relieved of the uh, necess- necessity to work on justice right now. So um, that's what my message will be about, is supporting the work of the ACLU and, and that each of us is responsible for moving this country towards a more just society. Amen to that. And so I want to just tell you that the ACLU Centennial Celebration in Philadelphia will take place at the National Constitution Center at 525 Art Street on Saturday, February 29th. You can get your tickets at aclupa.org slash centennial, and you'll get to hear from the illustrious... Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times Magazine. You'll get to ha- have a great time and celebrate civil liberties yes. here in America. So thank you so much to Reggie Shuford, Executive Director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, as well as to uh, New York Times Magazine reporter and uh, creator of the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Thank you so much for being on Flashpoint. Thanks for having us, Sherry. Thanks so thank much. Thank you very much. Next up, they're putting a call out to girls of color who want to do more than play when it comes to gaming. They can actually learn how to do something that will make them extremely valuable. The founder of a Philly area company explains its philanthropy philosophy. But first, traffic and weather in a couple minutes. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and our Patriot Home Care Changemaker is Urban Seat, an organization that's all about video games. But the company has put a call out to black and brown girls who want to do more than just play. The group wants to teach young women how to design their own. Here to tell us more is Sarita Lewis, founder of Urban Seek. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I typically know you and your work to fight gun violence, yes. specifically dealing yes. with schools. Yes. But now you're working in philanthropy. Yeah. So basically what we do is create really great ways to attack 
issues that are happening in different communities. And it does range from gun violence to voting issues and suppression to diversity and inclusion concerns that will happen with like students that are going into college. So we try to tackle a lot of these issues and make it so that people learn about them in a way that they retain. And I think that the best way to do that is to have fun while you're doing it. That doesn't minimize it, but it makes it more comfortable for people to be a part of the conversation. And to receive the information. (coughs) So video games. Yes. I like video games. You like video games. (laughs) I do. Um, So as part of my philanthropy, one of the things that we do is we work with Drexel University for Dragons After Dark, which is an anti-alcohol initiative that they have there. So on Thursday nights, we come in and we do lots of fun things with the students Mm -hmm. to kind of just lower their energy level to get them more comfortable and just having fun for a little bit. And so a lot of the students that are there have become really great friends of mine. And we were talking one day and I said, so, you know, what's it like to be in your major? Because two of the young women are video game design majors and they're African-American women. And they were like, oh, it's fine. It's a little lonely. And I asked, I said, well, you know, if you had had some tools to really just make you feel like you knew a lot more when you were younger, would you have liked that? And he was like, yes, queen. I was like, okay, so then let's design it. And it was just that simple. I said, I, let's design it. We sat and had breakfast and literally created the blueprint for what is now the Urban Seek Game Changers. And the intention behind that is to help black and brown girls to see themselves not as only people who play games, to see themselves as consumers, but to understand how really important their voice can be in creating something that's very special. And to also understand the challenges that will go along with being in that industry because, I mean, it's it's not the most interested in actually enjoying women to be a part of the space, and particularly not black women. So what I wanted to do was help them to understand the issues that will arise with them being a part of this industry and give them a platform that allows them to not only know about video game design but to take the tools that exists within video game design. It's virtual reality. It's augmented reality. You know, mm. it's it's all of those other things that actually segue into different industries. So they can actually learn how to do something that will make them extremely valuable. And Philadelphia is actually in the top 10 in terms of tech activity in the country. Mm. And yet, you know, women actually hold a very small slice across the country. But in Philadelphia, that's not so much the case. We're probably one of the more diverse spaces for technology in the country. So we're in a great space for women and young girls to get involved into this industry. And so it makes sense for them to do it and to have fun with it. And really, yeah, so I'm excited. And so you guys had your first information session. And what did you learn? I learned that these girls have been looking for their sisterhood for a long time. What I learned is that these girls are already very excited about video games, that they are just going out there, literally just going online and figuring out how to do it, you know, but not really able to pull all the pieces together so that it is a very cohesive curriculum for themselves. And that's what we've created is a curriculum that allows for them to learn computer languages that they can use to really get out into the world and create a space for themselves. And you know, to allow for themselves to work together to do that stuff. But we're going to be teaching them all those things and invite them to meet other black and brown people who are really, really the decision makers in tech and make them aware of them and introduce them to them and have them come in and meet with them. Yeah, to give them the type of support to keep them in there because it's a journey. It's a a journey journey. to getting in there. We're doing it. Like so literally... We started off with an idea back in like October or November, and it ended up with PEC offering us space because they had 16 computer stations. And they Mm. were like, we got 16 desks here. What do you want? I want all of them. (laughs) And so we started out with PEC saying that they were going to give us space and allow us to be able to do our programming there. And we have um, the Drexel Excite Center, which is also going to be another community partner with us. So when our girls do five weeks at the PEC, it will prepare them to really be able to jump with both feet into the water when they get to the Excite Center. So we're going to be doing 15 weeks with these girls, and it's free. Wow. (laughs) I mean, and this could be real jobs. And a lot of coders and gamers, they learn hands-on, and it's high-paying, high-value, highly-skilled work. Right. A lot of what I wanted, my vision, was to create something that was not just for girls, but really allows for us to shift the narrative for people in underserved communities. Because 25.7% of the Philadelphia community is actually impoverished. 
And so they're making like $25,000 and less, right? And then you have people who are in the tech space that are making like $90,000 on average. Yeah. So that's like a huge disparity. And the women and girls are actually the largest growing population here in Philadelphia. We're the most educated across the country. And so I want to make sure that our girls are invigorating this workforce and becoming a huge part of it. I want them to be highly sought after, highly valued, and also for them to be able to go into their communities and teach the other folks what they know so they understand that there's a low barrier to entry with tech. Especially because these young people, these kids, Gen Z, they've grown up with it. Yeah. You know, I see my niece, she's 10, Mm -hmm. and she can edit like nobody's business on her phone, on her iPhone. Exactly. So imagine if you say, okay, so these are things that you need to know so that you can not only just dabble with this, but that somebody wants you to be like, come here. I want you to actually be the core of my organization or, more importantly, I want you to identify how you're going to make your mark in the world. I don't expect you to have a seat at the table. I want you to go make that table and drag it into the middle of the floor, and everybody's going to want to sit there with you. That's my ultimate goal is for them to create a space where they are the ones making the decisions as opposed to other people telling them what to do. you got to open up your mind and learn how to think, really think and think critically. So what if people have a a young woman who they think is perfect for this? Is there something they can sign up for now? Absolutely. We still have spaces. The deadline for them to apply is next week, February 20th. The program actually will start on March 6th. Amazing. And so how can they reach you? They can reach me by either email at Sarita, S-E-R-I-T-A dot UrbanSeek, U-R-B-N-S-E-E-K at gmail.com. Or they can call me at 267-538-0558. Wonderful. So March 6th kicks off the 15 week. What's the commitment? So this is not a drop-in program. This is a very serious program. And so our girls are expected to spend six hours with us. So on Saturdays, they are four hours with us. And on Sundays, we expect two hours. They don't have to be face-to-face. It can be virtual. The intention is for them to really gain a lot of knowledge over a short period of time. And it doesn't sound like a short period of time. It's a short period of time. Yeah, so six hours a week committed. And they'll probably be doing stuff on their own as well. They will be doing stuff on their own. They will be doing team activities. They'll be doing things separately. So they're going to learn everything. They're going to learn languages like Python, C Sharp. They're going to use Unity. So they're going to actually be making a game. So... I expect for them to be doing stuff when they're not with us. That's amazing. So Urban Sea Game Changers, sign your girls up. You have a few more days. And it kicks off on March 6th. I can't wait to see the girls in action. Thank you. Thank you. Sarita Lewis, founder of Urban Sea. Thanks so much for being here. We'll be right back. Are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? You can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. To quote poet and author Maya Angelou, if you're going to live, leave a legacy, make a mark on the world that can't be erased. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.